And you can take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And um, it's so sweet, isn't it? Even uh, the day after Christmas to sing some Christmas carols. Um, we wanted to kind of prolong that as long as we could. It may be helpful to know that um, most of the Christmas carols that we do love to sing were actually written and intended to be sung not just at one time of the year around this season, but actually all year long. It's um, maybe something that the church ought to consider bringing back. I know that many of you look forward to this time of year and specifically singing these Christmas carols and these beautiful songs that emphasize this Christmas season. We wait for this all year long. Some of you um, wait eagerly for Christmas. I mean, you're right now already counting down the days. You're waiting for next Christmas. Your calendar's marked, you know, 364 days until next Christmas. Some of you are so eager for next Christmas, you're not even going to take down your Christmas lights. I respect that. We wait in life. That's just the reality of being human. We wait for all kinds of different things, for trivial things and for serious things. We wait for results from the doctor or the homecoming of a loved one we haven't seen in a while. We wait for reconciliation in relationships. And oftentimes, we can wait a long time for things that we desire and want to experience. And waiting is often hard. It's difficult. There's challenges that come with it. One of the Advent devotionals I was reading this week, referring to this very passage, talked about waiting. And here's what the author, Christopher Ashe, says. He says this, it can hurt waiting. It can hurt like hell. And he says, indeed, hell is just what it is like, for hell is an eternity of waiting in vain. Waiting can be a foretaste of the terrors of hell, he says, for hell is waiting and waiting without hope. And while that's true, for those who don't know Jesus Christ, it is not so for the Christian, because our waiting is one that is actually filled with hope, and it is anchored by hope. We wait with a hope, with a confident expectation in the promises of our God. We believe that our God is faithful and true to every word He has spoken. And here in our passage, I want to continue from where we left off in Luke chapter 2 on Christmas Eve, and I want to look at a man named Simeon who teaches us much about what it means to wait with great hope. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, listen to what Luke writes. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I've entitled this The Day After Christmas, mainly because today is the day after Christmas, and it's the next thing that comes in line in the story of the Christmas events. But in reality, this is a little over a week after the first Christmas event that we looked at on Christmas Eve. And it's an incredibly important story about this man named Simeon, again, who teaches us so much about what it means to wait, but to wait with great hope. You see, our waiting as Christians is not without hope. And in our waiting, we experience many of the things that are experienced in this passage. I want to show you three things. First is this, in our waiting, we experience hope deferred. We experience a hope that is deferred, that is a promise of something that is not yet completely fulfilled, something we're still waiting upon. It is guaranteed and it is promised, yet we do not know it now in full. We're introduced in this passage to this man named Simeon. He's in Jerusalem, and he's there waiting, in a sense, for Mary and Joseph to arrive with Jesus. He's likely an old man. Some even believe that he may have been a priest who had priestly functions in the temple. But what we know for sure is what the text tells us about this man, and it tells us essentially three things. First, it tells us, notice, that he was righteous and devout. That's what it says in verse 25. In other words, this was a man who was saved. He was an Old Testament saint. He was saved by placing his faith in the God of promise, in in the promises of God. And as a result, he was a man who was righteous. He was totally committed to God. He wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He wasn't, though, trying to earn a righteousness by keeping the law. No, instead, he lived out his salvation, living out of the very grace of God that had saved him. He was now a man who delighted in being obedient to the Word of God, to the law of the Lord. He was a man who lived for the glory of God. It tells us also that he was waiting, it says, for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he believed that God was going to bring comfort and ultimately salvation for the very nation of Israel. He believed again the promise that God had made to his people throughout the scriptures. And lastly, it tells us that he was a man upon whom the Holy Spirit was. The Spirit of God was on this man, again, signifying that he is a man who loves God, with whom 
God is well pleased. And I would just say, as we look at these three aspects, just quickly, of Simeon, these really are aspects that create a people of hope. These are the kind of things that when present, they foster and cultivate hope in the life of a believer, of a Christian. Let me say it maybe the opposite way. Without these things, often we find hopelessness beginning to grow and even in our own souls. Even as Christians, we can experience aspects of hopelessness and discouragement. And I think in many ways, it's because some of these things are often lacking in our lives. You see, hopelessness is the byproduct of being unrighteous and unfaithful to God, of not being devout, of not appreciating and living in the grace of God, and then in faithful obedience to God. Oftentimes, our sin, it bankrupts us even as Christians. And the more we pursue sin instead of righteousness, the more we sense a growing hopelessness even in our own hearts because we're being pulled further and further away from Christ. I think hopelessness is also the byproduct of looking for comfort or consolation, again, that's what this word means, from the world instead of from God. So every time we go to the world to find comfort, every time we go to the world to soothe our aching souls, what we're doing is we're pushing God away and saying, God, you're not enough, I'm not satisfied in you, and all that does is cultivate a hopelessness in our hearts. And lastly, Hopelessness is often a byproduct of quenching the Holy Spirit that as believers dwells in us, and yet we know that sin in us quenches the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Every time we choose to walk in the flesh instead of the Spirit, again, we're sowing seeds of hopelessness in our own heart. We're reminding our hearts that all this world has to offer is empty and unsatisfying. But you see, hope flourishes in the heart's of those who continue to pursue godliness in Christ Jesus. Hope flourishes in the heart that clings to Christ for true and lasting comfort, peace, rest, and satisfaction. Hope flourishes in a heart, listen, that is regularly being filled with the Spirit of God. This hope is not merely, by the way, some kind of wishful thinking or positive thinking or mere optimism. No, this, again, is a confident expectation in what God promises. And all his life, Simeon had known the promises of God. He was a man who knew the Word of God backwards and forwards. I'm sure of this. He watched and he, he waited for the consolation of Israel. He longed for the comfort that only the Messiah could bring. It's interesting, this word consolation, it's a word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in a number of places, predominantly in the book of Isaiah, when speaking of the coming Messiah who would bring ultimate comfort to the people of God. For example, in Isaiah 40 verse 1, it says this, comfort, comfort my people. In Isaiah 66, verse 13, it says this, As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. He longed for God to console, to bring comfort to Israel, and indeed, through the Messiah, to the whole world. And he believed 
He was a man of faith when few others truly believed in Christ's coming, or at least in the the biblical picture of the Messiah. And he never gave up, but he kept trusting and looking. He looked with great hope. He knew the pain and the turmoil of sin. Both outside of him, he could see it in the broken world all around him. But he surely knew it in his own heart. And he longed for the comfort that God promised he alone could bring. This promised one, the Messiah, would end the reign of sin and death and Satan. And he would restore peace, not just between God and man, but one day between God and the entire cosmos. But this promised Messiah had not yet come, and Simeon waited eagerly. We learn something here as we consider Simeon, this this faithful saint. The book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 12, says that hope deferred can make the heart sick. And we all know what that's like, a, a hope that never comes to fruition, You know, the the empty promises of a parent or a friend that are continually broken over and over and over eventually just make the heart sick and longing. There's a sense of brokenness. But you see, God is not like that unfaithful parent or unfaithful friend. God never breaks His promise. He always keeps His word. And so this hope that's deferred is so guaranteed that it does not make the heart sick. Instead, This kind of deferred hope actually is intended by God to strengthen our soul. You see, this kind of deferred hope is intended to increase our dependence and to strengthen our faith. It has the ability, if we let it, to to peel back the fingers of our heart off of the things that this world offers to us in the place of God. It's constantly pulling us away from the things of this world, reminding us that only God will do, only God will satisfy. It can increase godliness and righteousness if we let it, if we are satisfied with what God promises and aren't consumed with instant gratification that will only leave us longing for more. It can help us strive to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. You see, as Christians, we have a hope that is both alive, it is living and life-giving, and yet at the same time, it is deferred because we are a people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we know the hope that He offers, and yet we are still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of that hope when our Messiah returns in glory. There is still more that we are waiting for. So I want to ask maybe a question by way of application for us this morning. Is this deferred hope, the hope of our Savior who is returning, is it having its intended effect on your heart? Is it increasing godliness in your life? Is it increasing your longing to walk not in the flesh but in the Spirit? Is it increasing your longing and your clinging to Jesus as the only comfort for your soul. Put all your hopes on the Word of God and on Jesus who fulfills every promise of God. Hope will not be deferred forever. Simeon is an example of that. 
You see, like Simeon, one day soon, we will see this. Secondly, hope fulfilled. This is the promise that was made to him, that he would see the Messiah. This is such an incredible gift that was given to this man. And yet, I want you to know that you have been given the same kind of gift from God. You will one day see the Lord Jesus Christ return in glory. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But I want you to hear this. It also says, a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Where we know that hope is met, where we know that, that, that hope that's deferred is ultimately going to be fulfilled, it actually is intended to produce life thriving. There is a richness intended to be experienced in this. The Spirit of God had supernaturally revealed in a very personal and intimate way this message to this man. In verse 26 It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. I can't imagine what he must have been thinking when he woke up that day. The Spirit of God had directed him, had impressed upon him, had somehow revealed to him that he was going to actually see the Messiah physically before he passed from this life to the next. And one day, he woke up, and maybe he thought it was just an ordinary day, nothing special about it, and and I'm not sure what this looked like, but the Spirit of God began to lead and guide and impress upon his heart and direct him to go to the temple. And the Spirit of God made clear to him, "Today, today is the day, today is the day you are going to see that deferred hope finally fulfilled. You are going to see me in flesh who has come to save not only you, but the world. And what a day that must have been for this man. So there he is in the temple When this young couple comes to the temple to fulfill the requirements of the law, it would have been incredibly busy. The outer courts of the temple would have been packed, probably like a mall full of men on Christmas Eve. And perhaps through the crowd, as he looks and tries to spot this young couple, the Spirit of God points them out to him in some way and says, there, there they are. There's, there's the child. There's the Messiah. Mary and Joseph, there fulfilling the law. It's interesting. They're devout and they're righteous as well. But I want to maybe point something out to you that's really fascinating here. You see, they offer here a poor person's offering kind of glance over this, but verse 25 says that they offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons in requirement of the law. But what you don't know, maybe just at first glance, is this, that that was actually the provision for those who couldn't meet the requirements of the full sacrifice. If you were poor or if you lived in poverty, then this was the provision. It was a less expensive way of fulfilling the obligations of the command. You say, well, what's, what's so significant about that? Well, you see, it just seems to fit into the, the broader narrative and picture that Luke has been painting in his gospel. As we looked at the shepherds in the field, 
we see Mary and Joseph, we see this man Simeon, and what we get is this picture of, of poverty, of weakness. And it's, it's a precious picture because all of these individuals, they represent, they represent that their only hope is mercy and grace that is shown to them by God. That they have nothing truly to bring of significance. That's, that's the point. And there's this fascinating paradox in the Christian life when it comes to salvation. That the paradox of being profoundly empty and at the same time being profoundly full And this is what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where he says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst, there it is, profoundly empty and longing, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be, what does it say, church? Satisfied, there it is, profoundly full. And it's just this, this awesome paradox Here they are offering this sacrifice in their poverty for all to see. And through the crowd cuts this old man. I don't know about you, but it seems a little presumptuous to me to simply come up to a young couple and scoop up their brand new baby, especially an old man. <laughs> Moms, can you imagine that happening to you? Like, hey, can I, can I hold your baby? You'd be like, uh, no thanks, weirdo. But she doesn't seem put off by this. Not in any way. This old man scoops this baby up into his arms. And in a single moment, the hope that had for so long been deferred is finally fulfilled. I can remember, any of you who are parents, you remember probably the first time you hold your children, right? When they're born, the first time you've held your child in your arms. And there's just such a mix of emotions that go through your, your heart and your mind. You look at the precious child in your arms and you start to wonder what they're going to be like. What kind of personality are they going to have? You start to think about the future. What are they going to do? What kind of career choices are they going to make? What is going to become of this precious young life? But this, this here is different. As Simeon holds this young child in his arms, he already knows, at least in part, what this child will grow up to do. The text tells us that he knows. He knows that this child is the Lord's Messiah. He knows this child will grow up to be the way of salvation for all who will look to him and believe upon him. And as we read through this, we we also know that this means, he, he understands that this means it is going to be a life of suffering and a life of sacrifice. He's not confused about what this child is going to have to do. And we know that because look at what he says. He, he blesses them in verse 28 as he takes this child up in his arms. By the way, this is such an awesome moment, right? This is like the Lion King moment in the Bible, right? You know that monkey picking up the baby, except, except he's not holding up the baby for everybody to see. He's holding the baby. Think about this. Here he is holding the king of the universe in his arms, not for everyone to see, but listen, he pulls him close to his own chest. I mean, he's never been closer to the presence of God. 
And as he holds this baby in his arms, listen to what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is a man who read and understood the Old Testament. I mean, this fits so well into what we've been looking at in the book of Romans, doesn't it? He's holding this baby in his arms, and there's no doubt that at this moment in time, it's the most experiencing moment of his, sorry, it's the most fulfilling moment he has ever experienced in his entire life. I mean, just consider the, the staggering reality of what's taking place. He is holding the one who is at that moment holding all things together by the word of his power. And he says, I, I, I'm good, Lord. I, I, have, I have everything I need. I'm good to go and be with you now. You hear what he says? I can depart in peace how awesome is that? He says, I, I'm experiencing peace and I can depart in peace. It's so amazing because he is literally holding the Prince of Peace. The one of whom the angels sang just days earlier, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God's favor rests upon Simeon in an unusual way in this moment. And he is ready to go home to be with his God forever. And what we see here is the faithfulness of God, again, listen, to fulfill the promise of hope. And as we will see in just a moment, it is a hope that is for the entire world. But, but I don't want to rush past the significance, I think, of, of what's taking place here. You see, there's something so personal and so sweet that's taking place. One of the things that I was struck by again as, as I worked through this passage was that God's love and care is not simply general. It's very specific. It's tailor-made. Oftentimes we talk about, you know, God loving the world or God is love, and oftentimes we, we recognize that in a broad sense we see God's love in a multitude of ways but one of the things I think we can be particularly poor at doing is personalizing the love of God, of seeing how God's love really is uniquely directed towards us, that his loving care and provision is on full display in, in very unique ways in our lives. The child that he was holding in his arms was not simply the hope for the world. It was the hope of rescue for his very own soul. And I love that because it reminds me that when God plans to save sinners, he's not just thinking generally. He's going to save a bunch of sinners. He's thinking particularly, specifically about individual people that he has called out of darkness and into the light. I mean, consider this for a moment. The staggering reality of God's love towards you is seen in that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you personally. 
Before, listen, before you ever committed a sin, before you ever fought to find your identity in something other than God, before you ever allowed your heart to worship other things other than God, listen, before any of the mess you've made of your life, the things you've done or haven't done, listen, God knew it all before he created the world. He had set his loving affection upon you. He knows your name. Right now, he knows everything about you. He knows all of your pains, all of your struggles. He knows all of your joys. He knows every single hair on your head or the lack thereof. He, just, he, he loves you and he cares for you so specifically. And that's a precious truth that we need to cling to at many points in our lives. God loves to give good things to his children. He loves to fulfill, listen to this, he loves to fulfill your deepest longings and desires. Now, don't take that the wrong way. I'm not talking about the deepest longings and desires in a fleshly sense or a worldly sense, in an ungodly sense. I I mean the deepest God-given longings and desires of your soul, the, the ones that are tuned to the word of God. He loves to give you those desires. The things he desires most for you are the things you ought to want and desire most for yourself. And when you do, when your heart gets aligned with the will of God and the word of God, when the desires of God's heart become the desires of your heart and you long for those from the depths of your soul, God loves to pour out his blessings and meet those those desires in your soul. And because that's true, I want to maybe apply this as we come to the end of the year. We often take time at the end of a year to kind of reflect and look back and consider where we've been spiritually and have we been advancing and progressing? Have we been meeting those goals maybe in our lives that we've set out the year before? Where have we failed? Where have we been floundering? And this is a great time to do that. But I want to ask you, as we we look towards the start of a new year, what are those spiritual desires and longings that you are looking to cultivate this year in your life? And there are general ones that we could look at. We should all have desires to, you know, know the Word of God more, study the Word of God, memorize the Word of God, pray more. But but you know, you know what it is that God is trying to work on maybe in, in your life right now. Or maybe you don't, and that needs to become your prayer even right now. There are specific things that God wants you to begin to work on. Maybe it's growing in patience and grace. Maybe it's in growing in in love and hospitality and serving other people. Maybe it's growing in humility. Maybe there are other areas of character that need to be refined and God is pressing into you and he's saying, this is the year that I want your desire for these things to become more like my desire for you in this area. And I want to encourage you to to do a bit of an inventory, to jot down a few things that you really think God wants you to get after this year. And and, and now the goal is to plan how you're going to do that. How are you going to fight for these things? Because it's when we start pursuing these things that our desires for these things begin to be aligned more and more with the heart of God. And we can be confident that God is going to meet and fulfill these deep longings and desires. As we look at Simeon, and we've looked at ourselves, 
let me remind you that while his rescue plan is not less than you, it is certainly much more than you. And Simeon tells us just that. This is about a revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is about hope for the world. And we're reminded next that hope is required. Hope's required. And now Simeon turns, and after he's blessed them, he begins to speak a little bit more directly, specifically to Mary. In verse 33, it says, And his father and his mother, they marveled at what was said about him. Surely all of the events in the last week, the shepherds and the revelation from the angels, and now this, they're just astounded and awestruck by everything the Lord is doing and what it means for them and for the world. But then verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. They marvel. But what I want you to see is that there is still a desperate need in their own hearts for hope. There is still going to be a need to cling to the promises of God because what they face is not going to be easy. And it's interesting, you can kind of think of like what's happening almost as like a, a, a child dedication. Yeah, we do parent-child dedications here and we get parents up here and we celebrate the gift of children and the gift of new life and, and it would be incredibly strange with if, if while we were celebrating that and praying for parents that I, I just turned around and said, now listen parents, Things are going to get really messy with these children. In fact, you've got a lot of reason to be disheartened. You are one day going to be greatly heartbroken. You are going to be grief-stricken. It's going to be unimaginable what happens to your child. All right, go back and sit down now. Isn't it fast? He, he doesn't end on a note of celebration. He ends on a note of preparation. So get ready. Because while there is much joy and there is much glory to celebrate here, there is suffering that must come before the glory. He says three things about this child. First is this, this child will bring people down. He's going to humble them. He's going to crush them. And only then is he going to raise them up. He will cause some to die before they are raised. And listen, this is the necessary experience of all of those who come to faith in Christ. We must bow first in humiliation and in poverty of spirit, and in brokenness, and in our own inadequacy, we must see our insufficiency. We must acknowledge our hopelessness apart from Christ. We must see our sin for what it is of deserving of the wrath of God, of punishment and eternal damnation. And it is only then in that kind of poverty that we can be raised up by God to the new life promised in Christ. 
Only when we see our inadequacy are we ready for God's grace. But secondly, it tells us that he will be, this child, a sign that's going to be spoken against. We've seen this already in Romans. He will be a a rock of offense. He will be a stumbling stone. We know, we know what happens. We know the end of the story. We know that he is going to be mocked and ridiculed. He is going to be beaten and tortured. All the while, he is the sign that points all people to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the one who's saying, come, let me give you life and give it to you to the fullest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And people will spit on him and pull out the hair in his beard. They'll slam a crown of thorns into his head, and they'll eventually nail him to a piece of wood in utter humiliation and rejection. And that's why he says this, thirdly, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. His work will be a revealing work. It will be an exposing work. He will peel back hearts like we peel back layers of an onion to expose the heart of man. He will show what is truly in the heart of man, and he alone will be able to change the heart of man. And then with these stunning words, he tells Mary about the pain that she personally will endure. She will experience so much pain, it'll be like a sword that pierces through her own soul. There it is. The reason he was born. He must become the lamb who is slain, the sin bearer, the perfect substitute. And this child that she will love like no other will cause her grief like no other. Mary will one day stand at the foot of the cross weeping as she sees her son being hammered to a piece of wood. She sees his body torn open as she sees him suffering unimaginable physical pain as he drowns in in fluid in his own lungs. She She will stand and watch as her son suffers for the sins of the world. He bears the wrath of God. He pays what you and I deserve. She will watch it all. She will witness that horrific day and the sword will pierce her heart. How can she endure such agony? One simple word, hope. Hope is required as she waits for him to accomplish his mission. Hope is required as she watches him fulfill the task that he said he would fulfill before the world was ever created. And you know, in that regard, we're really, in some ways, not that different from Mary. 
Because we know, too, intimately the death of our Savior. We still see the brokenness of this world. We see the pain of sin all around us. We see the pain of sin within us. We live in this world as exiles. We are called to suffer like the suffering servant Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, we too, like Mary, are called to be a people of hope. We too, like Simeon, are called to be a people of hope who are longing and waiting for his returning. We are called to be a people who wait with great hope and great anticipation and every year, listen, we celebrate Christmas Eve and we celebrate Christmas like we, we just have and in many ways still are. And every time we look, we do that. We look back at the first coming of Jesus Christ. We remember that he came from heaven to earth as a tiny little baby and he was placed in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. He came in humiliation and poverty. And every year we celebrate Easter where we remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our Lord and we're refreshed and reminded again that he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning. But every year we do so, listen, you need to hear this, we are reminded that Jesus has not yet returned in glory. We're reminded every calendar year that we celebrate all of these things, listen, that yes, we're getting older, but we're also reminded every time we celebrate, every time we gather, that the day of our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The passing of time presses in on us. We see the world as it is, but as it ought not to be. And we often find our hearts crying, how long, oh Lord, but those words, listen, they are not without hope because we know that our Savior is coming back again. He is coming back on a cloud in glory and he will rule and reign supreme forever and ever and ever. We, listen, we are the first fruits of the new creation. We are reminded that we have been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection power that dwells in us and has made us new creations in Christ. Listen, we'll one day be at work to recreate the entire world where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow. There will be no place for pain. There will only be peace. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. We will dwell with our Lord forever in glory. And the first coming of Christ, listen, it strengthens our hope. It proves that God is faithful. He did what he promised to do. He has started what he will one day finish. And even if the promise of God takes a thousand years or longer to be fulfilled, listen, a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. We wait in hope, knowing that one day soon he will come back, not as a baby in a manger, but as a king who conquers. We wait and we hope for the return of King Jesus. And our hope carries us through all of the ups and downs of this life. Simeon, here in this passage, is a foretaste of this waiting with this kind of hope. 
And as we let this kind of wash over us, I want to leave you just with five simple ways that we should be waiting. There's a lot we could say, but I want to leave you with some things that we should be doing while we wait. So often we think that waiting is inactivity, it's passive in nature, but biblically speaking, waiting is active in so many ways. There's a lot of things we could say, but let me just give you five really quickly to maybe encourage you as we look towards this new year. First, how should we be waiting? We should wait by praying. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 6:18. He tells believers to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You see, our waiting is about active dependence upon God. Our prayer demonstrates this great dependence on God, asking Him to continue to work, to, to spread the gospel, to strengthen believers, to do what only He can do. So while we wait, we should be praying and interceding, pleading with God to continue to work in mighty ways. Secondly, we should wait by growing. 1 Peter 2.2 says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So while the fullness or completeness of our salvation will one day come with the return of Jesus, we are still called to be a people who are growing up in our salvation, who are maturing in godliness and righteousness. So while we wait, let us pursue Christ-likeness. Let us devote ourselves to the Word of God and to becoming more and more like the Son of God. Third, we should wait by gathering. Hebrews 10, 25 tells us, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, notice this language, as you see the day drawing near. This is a, a protective measure for the family of God. We get together to strengthen one another's faith, to encourage us because we're living in a world that wants to pull us away from God, to tempt us to disobey God. And so we get together and we sing and we sit under the word and we serve one another and we speak the word to one, one another and we are encouraging our faith and calling one another to hold fast to the Lord. Fourth, we should wait by witnessing. And this should go without saying, but listen to Revelation 22.10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time, listen to this, is near. This is not a time for Christians to be silent, to be sealing up the words of the prophecy of the book of Revelation or, or the words of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form. We know that the time is near. The day is coming where Jesus is returning in glory and people desperately need to know about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that is offered to them. Finally, we should wait by watching. Revelation 16, 15 says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And as God's people, there is a, a calling on our lives to be ready, to stay awake, to be vigilant 
to be about the kingdom of God and the things of God, to not be caught up in this world, to be reminded that we're citizens of heaven. to be ready for His return. We wait by watching for His return. He, church, He is coming again. And when He does, here's the awesome news, our hope will not be put to shame. Come, Lord Jesus, come.